Welcome to The Wealth Intersection with Megan Gorman. In this program, you'll hear fascinating stories from science, technology, finance, and the arts. Learn how dynamic individuals created their paths to success and the wealth intersections that occurred. It's where you might just find the answers on how you can pursue your passion while creating the necessary foundation to build personal wealth. And now, here is Megan Gorman. Hello, and welcome to The Wealth Intersection. I'm Megan Gorman, and I'm your host. What I'm really excited about in this program is that we get to meet with really successful people and learn about their path to success and where wealth intersects with it. And I've often said this is really where you can learn a lot about how you can build wealth. And one of the most sort of interesting components of wealth is it's not just about smarts, but it's actually about having smarts and knowing when to take risk. Life is about choices. And when we decide to let risk into our life, that sometimes propels us to another level. So in the idea of wealth and risk, I'm really excited about my guest today. With me is Larry Namer, and he's a man who's been on a really amazing journey. He started out literally in the sewers of Brooklyn in New York City and made his way to Hollywood, where he launched one of the most amazing channels, especially for me as a Gen, a Gen Xer, called E-Entertainment. So shows that we grew up looking at in the, in the 80s and 90s, like Talk Soup and E-True Hollywood Story, these were his brain children. And now he's reinventing himself again and in a new place in China. So I am really excited to welcome him to the show. Larry, welcome. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I, I have to ask, growing up in Brooklyn, did you ever think you were going to grow up to become such an entrepreneur? Mm, no. Actually, you know, both um, my mom and dad uh, were, um, you know, they were the children of immigrants and uh, everything was about uh, play it safe, be secure, you know, get a, a city job and retire and get a pension and stuff like that. So, you know, growing up, the aspiration was, you know, maybe one day become a teacher or something where you could retire after 20 years or so. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's interesting. So you grew up with this sort of message of stability, safety, trying to find a way to, to build the American dream, but yet slowly. Uh, yeah, you know, they. my father's family was from Turkey, my mother's family was from Siberia, and, you know, when they came over here, you know, everything was about security, and uh, that was kind of what uh, was taught to the kids, and so I, I was the first boy, I think, to go to college, first kid in the, the whole family to go to college, and, um, you know, it was just very different and stuff, so, you know, having parents that were trying to push in one direction when you wanted to go in another was kind of an interesting thing too but uh uh but it worked out you know yeah so growing up did you have jobs did you i mean you said put you went in another direction from where they wanted you to go well my my jobs you know first of all you know with, with the family it was like once you hit 12 you needed to work i mean you needed to contribute to the family so i started working around 12 years old uh i go to school obviously but uh Working in, um, uh, you know, a, a five and ten cents store selling cigarettes for 25 cents a pack and uh, worked in a factory that uh, did made uh, like lemonade for the beach uh, cool. things, you know, where I was packing the crates and uh, 
Then I would work with my dad on the Pepsi Cola truck, uh, you know, delivering soda to every delicatessen in Brooklyn and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So then you going to college was probably a huge achievement for for them. Uh, yeah, it, and and they they really supported that. You know, when I decided that I wanted to go to college, um, they they really got behind it. And my father got an, an I think his third job and. You know, to be able to support that and stuff. Not that I went to an expensive college, but it still was a lot more than the family was used to. So, but very different than today, where everybody takes out a lot of loans. It sounds uh, like everybody chipped in to get you there. Yeah, it was. It was, it was pretty much. Um, you know, my my mom worked for social services in New York, and my dad worked for Pepsi Cola. But then he took uh, he took like nighttime jobs and stuff. You know, which helped me pay. You know, even the minor tuition that wow. I had to pay. Wow, that's amazing. So here you are, you go to college, you've got to have sort of a drive in you. What happens next? Well, it's actually unusual because I had gone to college and the plan was that I would become a teacher. Okay. Um, I would teach either economics or history and stuff. And I, and I went through and I did the student teaching and the whole thing. And uh, it was just then that the city of New York went through a budget crisis. Okay. And the then mayor, I think it was John Lindsay, um, decided that uh, they were going to put a freeze on hiring all city workers. So here I went to college for four years to become a teacher, five years I went to college uh, to become a teacher, and they froze teacher hiring for five years. Wow. Um, so I, you know, I said, geez, now what do I do? I, you know, I mean, I don't want to be an economist or a historian, <laughs> uh, and I didn't know what to do. So somebody... Um, that I knew uh, their dad was uh, in the electrician's union. Okay. And they said, hey, you know, if you want a summer job, they, you know, my dad can get you working for this new thing. It's called cable TV. I'm not quite sure what it is, but we could probably get you something there. <clears throat> so that's literally how I started working. Uh, I got a job as an assistant splicer in the sewers of, uh, of Manhattan, not Brooklyn. Uh, it was a company called Sterling Manhattan Cable okay. TV. And, I remember that name. Yes. And, you know, which was Chuck Dolan, who went on to start HBO and, you know, a lot of other good things. Um, but that's that's literally how I got it. So I took a summer job and here I am okay. still thinking it's a summer job. <laughs> that's probably a good thing. Yeah. So so you start as a cable splicer, but how do you work your way up? I mean, because you're in a career path that I'm assuming comes with a pension, a stable paycheck. So the way your parents are looking at it is... You, you've scored. Yeah, because first of all, it was electrician union, which was very prestigious. And you, you couldn't just become, uh, you know, getting to IBW, you know, local three at that time uh, as a regular electrician. But because this was a new group called cable TV, which even the electricians didn't know quite what it was, um, it did have that stable path to it. So I started off that way. And um you know, when I got into the company, you know, on the technical side, um, there were very few. I mean, I, I think I was the only one with a college degree. Yeah. And I might have been the only one with a high school diploma. Wow. Um, so, you know, a lot of the equipment and stuff, you know, they go, hey, kid, how did you learn how to use that equipment so fast? You know, I go, well, you know, I read the instructions. And they go, you know how to read? Um, so, you know, I was kind of that unusual body working out, in, you know, in the sewers, Um you know, with a lot of education behind me. And um, uh, and then I kind of rose through the ranks. So, you know, I started out as assistant splicer and then I became a splicer and then they they made me a uh, an installer and then once I learned how to install. But I kind of I was on this accelerated path 
simply because I know how to read the instruction books for a, a lot of stuff. And, um, uh, you know, and then uh, what happened was Chuck Dolan sold the company to Time Inc., okay. which is a magazine company at that time. Yeah. And, you know, they were on this plan to um, move from becoming publishing to becoming media over a 10-year plan. Okay. And um, so now you had sophisticated HR and stuff like that. And, you know, so you had all the Harvard and Yaleys sitting up on 6th Avenue going, well, what is this company we bought? What do those people in those sewers do? And then somebody in HR was smart enough to say, wait a second, there's a guy that uh, actually knows how to read a balance sheet that, that does that and stuff. So I, so at first I kind of became the translator between, you know, those two groups and I could explain to the, you know, the corporate guys what the, the other guys are doing and vice versa. It's an interesting point you bring up because I think today in building careers, people look at people like you and think, oh, it, it, it was easy. But one of the things that I think is unique in your story is you put a lot of time in learning each part of the job as you worked your way up. Yeah, I, I, I literally did every job there and I was in construction and maintenance and, and all of that stuff there. And then, um, you know, eventually, you know, one of the timing people who was in charge of Manhattan Cable, which they changed the name of the company from Sterling to just plain Manhattan, um, wanted me to go into um, management. And I was like, well, I don't want to go into management. I'm nice and secure and, you know, and I get overtime. And by that time, I had... Um, That's an important uh, comment. You get overtime, right? So you were thinking uh, more of the short-term aspects of the job was, change. It, you know, it was great because I also... Um, uh, because there were contract negotiations going on and the guys in the union recognized that I was different than the others. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they made me the vice chairman of the division of the union. So I was 24 years old and I was in charge of like hundreds of union workers. and Guys older so, than your father. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, people who would pick it and, you know, do all this, you know, organizing and stuff like that. And... Um, you know, because, again, knowing, you know, basic business and knowing how to read well and, you know, all that stuff. So I became like the negotiator for the contracts between the union and and the management. And the management recognized I was a little bit different than the other sewer workers that they knew. And they kept trying to get me into management. So it sounds like you had some natural ability coupled with the fact that you had gone to college really sort of helped in this. I mean, but it also sounds stressful to be 24 negotiating contracts for for a union. Well, I mean, plus, you know, everybody, you know, on the timing side, you know, the closest people to like my position were, you know, 45 plus and, you know, they would treat me as a kid. And, you know, on the union side, you know, I I didn't know how to burn down buildings and, you know, do all the (laughs) stuff they do when they they organize. So, you know, so, yeah, so I, I was you know, unusual, uh, at at that point, it was incredibly stressful and, you know, just learning two different worlds at once. But learning another skill for the toolbox. Yeah. Uh, so it was good. So it was a great time to be there because, um, eventually I did move over into management. Um, and, um, uh, it was just a great time because Time Inc. really had made this decision to become a media company. So we started all kinds of new stuff like HBO and Cinemax. And <clears throat> it would literally be, um, you know, somebody would come, you know, in one day and say, we heard about these new things called satellites. And we're going to use them to send signals around the country. And we're going like, what's a satellite? <laughs> um, 
But we got to do all kinds of amazing stuff. And then we bought a company called ATC, which was the largest cable company. And then Timing Cable became the largest cable operator and and stuff like that. So, you know, I had a good life at that point. It sounds like it. And so you were doing well career-wise. You were young. Yeah. It sounds like you were doing well financially. So, so at a certain point in time, you could have kept going down that path. Yeah, except what happened was... Um, so, you know, I had gone into management. So I spent half my time in, you know, in the union as, a, you know, as field worker and then the other half in uh, management. And I had been first in charge of, uh, I was the, the head of service and then I was the head of service and installation. And then they added construction to it and then they added uh, marketing to it. So just, you know, my job kept growing. And then eventually I became um they gave me this interesting job. It was being the head of corporate development, okay. uh, finding non-entertainment uh, uses for the cable wire. Okay. So I started getting into data. This is pre-internet, you yeah. know, how you move data from one place to another and telephony and all that kind of stuff. But then I hit the 10-year mark. Yeah. And I said, wait a second. I said, I'm, I just turned 30 and I'm qualifying for a pension. Wow. I said, this is bizarre. I said, it's not really what I want. And uh, it was just at that time that um, all the big cities around the country decided that cable was something they should have. So they were offering cable franchises. Okay. And, um, of course, the big cities didn't want more wires being put on telephone poles. They wanted everything to go underground. Well, the only underground system in the country was Manhattan. And you had helped with and that. I was the head of construction. <laughs> So I, I knew how you get those wires under the ground and, you know, the, how do you put the pipes in and do all of that kind of stuff there. And then I got a call from um, a headhunter who said, uh, you know, there's a group that won the franchise in Los Angeles and, you know, they want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And I said, listen, you know, I, I'm not going from New York to L.A. I said, that's <laughs> like voodoo. Uh, and um, then I finally got a call from the chairman of that company who said, listen, you know, we won that franchise um, and we really wanted to come out. And I said, listen, I'm just not interested. I'm a New Yorker. And by this time I had bought a play, I bought a loft in New York and, you know, it was yeah. like kind of, you know, I was 30 years old and it was kind of cool to have a Sounds place. Sounds like you had a great life, right? I mean, they had to do no a lot to make you make a change. And yeah, so, you know, the guy said, oh, listen, you know, do you, you, know, do you have a girlfriend? I said, yeah. He goes, okay. You and your girlfriend, I'll fly out first class. You'll stay in the Bel Air Hotel. I want one hour. I said, okay, as long as you understand, there's no chance that I'm going to ever move out there. And, and had you been to L.A. before? Uh, yeah, I had, I had been to L.A. before, and it was someplace I didn't want to go. Um, but, you know, so I, I flew out, and I met with the guy, and we went through. And I was, like, totally rude and going, okay, you got 60 minutes, go. Uh, <laughs> you know, and... Um, so, you know, after that, you know, I went back to New York and it was the winter and, um, you know, there was just one day I was, you know, I walk into the office and oh, this guy called and I speak to him. He says, uh, and, and when I had met with him in L.A., he said, OK, what would it take for you to move out? Right. And I named like four times what I was making in, in New York. And did and you do that because you thought you had nothing to I just lose? wanted to get rid of the guy. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, you know, and, and plus, you know, I, you know, I said to myself, it would have to be like a crazy, crazy offer for me right. to ever think of moving out of New York. Right. I mean, and, um, uh, you know, the, so the guy calls and uh, says, you know, OK, 
what you asked for was totally nuts, but we'll offer you this. And they offered me literally twice what I'm making. And my response just came out automatically. I said, listen, when you asked me, I wasn't negotiating. I told you what it would take. And he goes, really? I go, yeah, you know, that's it. And I hung up. And then after I'm like going, you know, am I nuts? Did I just do the wrong thing? And then it was like I say, it was like in February or March or something like that. And it was a snowstorm in New York and I'm walking to work and I've got my suit and tie on and a taxi comes by and splashes like black snow all over me. <laughs> and I'm like dirty and I'm frozen and, you know, I'm going, you know, boy, that California <laughs> starting to seem much better. And um well, and I have to say, we're sitting here in L.A. today, and it's gorgeous and sunny. I'm from New Jersey, so yeah. you know the best time to woo us is the winter time because this yeah. is gorgeous. Yeah, so I, I, you know, after that, I'm like dirty, and I get into work, and you know, my assistant says, "Oh, you know, that guy called again," and you know, so I said, "Oh, what does this guy want?" And I call him back, and you know, I said, "Listen, I told you, I'm not moving." So he goes, "Okay, what you asked for is ridiculous, but how fast can you be here?" And I went, "What?" So he goes, how fast could you get out here? Wow. And I looked at the dirt all over my new suit. And I said, how about two weeks? And I literally just walked into my boss's office and I said, you know, Frank, I, I'm done. I'm finished. I'm out of here. So, so, and did you think about the pension? Did you think about how your parents were going to react? I mean. No, at that point, I didn't know. All I thought about was being wet and cold and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, so I, I just. You know, my boss was going, Larry, what's wrong? What do you want, a new death share? I mean, what is it that you need? And I said, nothing. I said, I'm just done. I'm out of the city. Yeah. And I just came out here, and I've been liking it ever since. So. Yeah. It's, it's pretty hard not to like, I mean, to be honest. But, yeah. But I think it's interesting that you seem to, even at, you know, you're 30 at this point in the story, but even just your gut instincts seem to serve you well. Even though we, uh, privately you're saying, I can't believe I just did that. What is it that taught you? How did you learn that? It was just something that you've always had about well, yourself? No, no. It was, um, it, you know, first of all, I'm a voracious reader. I read like 50 magazines a month and like two or three books a month. I just read, read, read about the most obscure subjects, you know. I, I mean, I could crochet now. Seriously? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love and, it. Uh, yeah, one one time I was doing research for something called the Hobby Channel, Hummingcraft Network. Okay. And I really figured that if I'm going to show how people crochet and knit and stuff, I have to know how to do it. So exactly. I how to do it. <laughs> but um, that's also interesting because that's also how you learned how to rise in the company by doing. Yeah, by doing. Yeah. And um, but no, you know what? I my last job there was in Manhattan was this corporate development, and really looking at the future again. It's pre-internet. And looking at uh, data transmission and all these, you know, remote medical diagnostics. And, you know, for me, it was like, you know, planning, you know, somebody whose job is planning housing starts in, in you know, 20 years from now, you know, right. 2050. I mean, who's going to know whether you're right or wrong? And at the end of the day, who really cares? Right. And I'm saying all this stuff is really cool, but I'm never going to be able to do that here in Manhattan. And then here, this cable system in, in L.A., uh, gets a franchise, and part of what they promised the city was all this um, amazing new technological stuff. It was going to be the first two-way cable system ever built west of the Mississippi. Wow. It was going to be 61 channels, where at the time, the average cable system was 17. Yep. Um, I remember those and days. It, you know, it was all of this stuff, and I'm going, wow, you know, it would be fun to play with that. 
And so that was kind of it. It was it was knowing that I was going to be able to do this stuff that I've just been doing book learning on yeah. for, for quite a while. And so you go from being a corporate person to sort of the entrepreneurial mix, even though you're working for a company yeah. when you first got out here. It, well, it was pretty entrepreneurial. It was a company out of Canada, and um, they had uh, bid 17 franchises in the U.S., figuring they're going to win two. Mm. And they won Atlanta, and then they won um, they won L.A. And um, because the, the, the proposals were so advanced and the company was so advanced, uh, they ended up winning the next 15. Mm. Um so it was just this explosion kind of thing. So I was going back and forth between L.A. and Atlanta a lot and, and doing this. And we did out here, you know, we did, uh, you know, politicians being able to talk to people live and, you know, interact with them. And things that are pretty common today that you do on the Internet. But again, this is, you know, 15 years before Internet. Yeah. And, so this uh, is like the mid-80s at this point? This is kind of like early 80s, 81, 82, 83. And. Uh, so, uh, so I, I did that and I, I built that company and then, um, because they won so many franchises the finally the bank came in and said, wait a second, guys, you know, this company's like 98% debt, you know, you got to put some equity in and like none of us had any money, you know, or not that kind of money. Right. And, um, uh, so we, uh, so the Canadians sold out the company Mm-hmm. And they said, hey, you know, this is great. Now just move to Toronto and you'll be in the corporate office. And I was like, well, well wait a second. <laughs> I said, I didn't go from New York to L.A. to go to Toronto. So I decided that I was going to stay there. And, and it did kind of lead to entrepreneurial because when I, um, when I got out here at first, they basically gave me a piece of paper from the city and said, okay, here's the franchise. Here's all the things you got to do. Here's the contact at the Bank of Toronto, the Toronto Dominion, that's just going to give you all yep. the money. Uh, nice to know you. Take care. And they kind of left me like going, okay, what do I do here? So I, I got to be very, even though I was working for a company, I got to be very entrepreneurial. And, so does and that good. start to set the stage for what becomes... What yeah. ultimately becomes E Entertainment, which wasn't E Entertainment at first. And it started out as movie time. So, so when they moved back to Toronto, and I was still out here, my friend Alan Marufko and I, and Alan came from New Jersey, Englewood Cliffs, and we started saying, you know, let's think of something to make money for ourselves instead of you know for other people. And Alan was into real estate okay. business and stuff, but he wanted to be in entertainment, and so we just started looking at it and saying, okay. If you you really pay attention to what's being written, cable TV is an electronic newspaper. Right. And we said, okay, so CNN is the is the the, the headlines and ESPN is the sports, but the second most read section of any newspaper is the entertainment pages, and that was conspicuously missing. Mm. So we just said, hey, let's just start the entertainment pages of the cable TV newspaper. So, so okay, so do you guys just? become partners? I mean, was it yeah, just we, the two of you? I know there was actually three of us and there was one more person um, who, who was actually the person who introduced Alan and I um, and he had worked for Showtime and um, so we came up with this idea for a channel and um, we wrote a business plan and the, the third person kept saying, you guys are crazy, nobody will ever give you money to start a channel, you should just be a TV show. 
Okay. And we were like, you know, we don't want to be a TV show. That's, you know, there are a lot of TV shows out there. And, you know, we said what MTV is to the music business, we want to become to, you know, the world of entertainment and film and stuff like that. So he, he left. He, he said, well, buy me out. And really? We was it just, out. was he risk adverse in general in the partnership? Totally, yeah. I mean, partners, and I think this is one of the hardest things about being in a startup is it's really hard to find the right partners. It's the most. It's one of yeah. the most important decisions, but it, it can really mess things up. Yeah. So he was totally against the whole network idea and saying, "Look, you know, everybody's telling you you're not Rupert Murdoch, you're not Ted Turner, you'll never start a channel." Yeah. And you know, he was probably right, but we weren't smart enough to to pay attention. So we just stayed at it, you know, for literally three and a half years, looking for the first investor. So how did how much money did you need to raise? We, we needed to raise sixty million. The, the going rate. Uh, for getting a network on the air, you know, because that's the time of uh, MSNBC and, you know, those networks all going on the air at about 60 to 100 million. Um, and none of the studios wanted to finance this? Well, you couldn't You couldn't do the studios. You know, some okay. of the things we did instinctively turned out to be absolutely dead on. Okay. Um, we didn't know how smart they were at the beginning, but we kind of figured it out as we went. Um, in order to get the studios interested, you had to be Switzerland. So you mm-hmm. couldn't take money from Universal because then why would Paramount right. want to participate with a, a company that's being run by one of their major competitors? Right. Um, so they certainly wanted, didn't want to divulge like new releases and what's in development mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So you had to be totally independent of all the studio money, okay. which made it really hard because the most obvious people who invest would have been the studios, right. but yet you couldn't take any money from the studios. Right. So where did you go? So we we went all over and, you know, we had people yell at us. And I, I even went to a meeting once where somebody threw a book at my head. <laughs> um, and finally, we, we met a group um, out of New York that was a, was a bond house. Okay. And they had just um, gotten a, a major uh, investment from an Italian bank, and they wanted to start a merchant banking division. Okay. So we met a guy on an airplane, and we told him, you know, what we're doing. He says, oh, I work for Warner Communications, and I know where you can go with that. And we were like, yeah, we've heard this for three and a half years. So we actually went to a meeting with the person that he recommended, and we walk in the room, and it's a young guy. And uh, he's the first head of investment banking for this new entity. And we see movie posters on his wall. And we're like looking at each other and going, no, this is weird. And uh, we're talking, he says, oh, I used to be the entertainment reporter for my college newspaper. And we're going like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he goes, I love this idea and I could give you money like right away. We said, that's great. So you'll write a check for 60 million? He goes, well, no, I'm only allowed to write a check for two and a half. So did you take the two and a half? Well, we said, what are we um, going to do with two and a half? It costs 60. He goes, well, I'm only allowed to write two and a half. So finally we said, okay, you know what? We'll take the two and a half. And, um, uh, you know, so now we, we had this minor investment and we realized that. And we're going to take a break right here, Larry. Okay. So and if you don't mind, if you could li- listen to our commercial and then tune back in to the Wealth Intersection to find out what Larry did with $2.5 million in launching e-entertainment.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Wealth Intersection with Megan Gorman. If you have a question or comment about the program, your money, or what it can do for you, please send an email to megan at thewealthintersection.com. That's M-E-G-A-N at thewealthintersection.com. Now, back to the show. And I want to welcome you back to the Wealth Intersection. I'm here with Larry Namer. And as we went into commercial break, Larry was telling us he got an investment bank to make a $2.5 million investment in his idea. So what happened next? Well, so we told everybody we're going on the air. We named a date. And um, Jack Valente was the, the head of the uh, uh, the MPAA at the time, and we asked Jack to uh, participate in the launch and, you know, pull the fake switch that we made up that put the network on the air, and Jack said, okay. And, um, you know, so here, you know, we needed all this money, but we didn't have it. So I called up a friend who was teaching radio, television, and film in Austin, the University uh-huh. of Texas, and I said, do you have a bunch of kids who need intern jobs for the summer? And he said, yeah, I got a whole bunch of them. So he sent us uh, 31 kids. To L.A. to, to LA. come start the show. We, we rented apartments and we bought mattresses and um, and stuff. And we, we rented what was at one point the freight railroad station in okay. Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, and that became the first studio. And um, so with 11 employees and 31 interns, we put the channel on the air, which initially we called Movie Time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the tagline was where America watches Hollywood and stuff. And then when we decided to really broaden into music and other things is when the name changed to E, 
but you know, it was in the continuation. So when, if I was there on launch day, what would have been, what would have been on the channel? Did you have any shows that were made for the, for the channel or were you using other media sources? Well, we did, we, we kind of followed, you know, we didn't have any money for research. So we used to, our research was watching MTV. Um, so we had movie jocks instead of, you know, video jocks. And, uh, we would call the studios and say, look, give us the trailers of the movies. And of course, again, the, um, the most interesting part of a, a movie was the trailer right. in most cases. And um, so we would get those for free. And then we just would have, you know, we, we hired uh, four hosts initially and then in- increased to five. And the, um, they would stand up and go, and Arnold Schwarzenegger has a new movie, and you know we'd show the clip and stuff. So we had incredibly high production value mm-hmm. uh, for very, very little money. So we started out that way, and we figured out how to slice and dice. We would have the, the foreign films, and then we have the action channel, and you know all of that. And then we started getting into original production. We started doing the Academy Awards and and those things, which at first they, they wouldn't give us credentials. Oh, wow. um, so the first Academy Awards we ever covered, we actually climbed over the fence. <laughs> and now, and now they own in. the red carpet on the Academy Awards. Yeah, I, they wouldn't they wouldn't give us credentials at all. So our our crew climbed over the fence and snuck in. So how long were you doing this sort of <clears throat> shoestring thirty interns on the two and a half million? I mean, it couldn't have lasted long. No, no. But as soon as it went on the air, yeah. all the cable operators came to us and said, "Oh, that's what you wanted to do. Uh-huh. That's great, you know, because." My experience as a cable operator really came into play because the, you, no matter how much you thought about it, you, every month you'd made that decision, do I renew my HBO subscription? Mm-hmm. And that was the big source of profit for the cable companies. Mm-hmm. So we actually did a bunch of research showing that that it's not really how much you watch on HBO. It's your perception of what's on HBO. Got it. So if you heard of the movies when they were in the movie theater – your value perception was much higher. If you never heard of them, they could have been the best movies. You'd look at the HBO guide at the beginning of the month and say, I never heard of these movies, bad month, right. and may not renew your subscription. Whereas if you only heard about them, right. even if you didn't watch them, right. your perception was much that higher. That little snippet that gets in your ear as you... So we were really able to show people with, with hard data that um, promoting a movie in its theatrical window actually helped the pay TV window tremendously. And the cable operators will grab that. You know, and that kind of came from my cable background. So so you had success fairly quickly after launching. As soon as it went on the air, everybody said, oh, we would have given you the money three years ago if you only told us. And we were going like, we try to tell you. Um, but yeah, in that first year, we grew, I think we were in 14 countries. I mean, it just became, it was, you know, one of those, Three and a half year instant, you know, overnight success. The guy who wanted out, your original partner, what did he say? Uh, he sued us. Oh, of course he did. <laughs> yeah. Said, you guys should have told me that it was going to be this successful. He lost the case, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the judge kind of laughed. and. But during all of this, what I, what, I, what I love about your story is you never talk about the money beyond what you had to go raise to start the channel. This, this was passion. Yeah. This is, well, we knew we, we had the right idea. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't hard to figure out that, you know, American TV audiences love gossip. Yes. So let's talk yeah. about that because I, you know, as a Gen Xer, I think I was always on E! Entertainment, right? And the three shows that come to mind are obviously Talk Soup, E! True Hollywood Story, 
and then the Howard Stern show. Right. So of those shows, like where were you? Where where did you have the most imprint with them? Well, at, at the beginning, the you know that the um, the person who was teaching radio, television, film in Austin, mm-hmm. uh, we convinced him to move and come out here and work. So he ran programming, a guy named Brian Owens. Okay. And Brian had a really great team and stuff. And um, people people don't realize, they say, oh, you were so lucky you had all those great hosts. You had, you know, Greg Kinnear and Julie Moran, who did Why World But Sports. they were unknowns. No one knew them They before were all you. totally unknowns. And they, they were going, oh, you were so lucky. Well, to get the first five hosts, we put a 7,200 people on tape. Wow. Because we realized we didn't have enough money to make great programming, but our, our task is finding great hosts. And today so, that would have been the show, right? To yeah. find the host. Yeah. Right. And um, so Brian, Brian had come out. And a lot of, a lot of the ideas were, you know, Brian and his team developing and stuff like that. And, you know, for, for Greg Kinnear, you know, we realized we had an amazing talent in Greg and we wanted to create something for him. And uh, initially, I think Brian's idea was, it wasn't called Talk Soup. It was called Talk Soap. Ah, so it was okay. going to be a show that was a wrap up a daily wrap-up of the soap operas for women who worked and couldn't keep up with their favorite okay. soap operas. But we couldn't clear the clips. Uh, so then we just started calling all these, you know, these these shows and, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the, the gossipy shows and all that stuff and said, oh, yeah, sure, here's, you know, all the clips you want. So that's kind of how Talk Soup started. And you saw people latch on to the frothiness that comes with gossip. Oh, and, and plus, you know, with Greg, it, it was funny because, you know, Greg um, was probably the least, um, had the least background to be a host there. Um, and he was very vulnerable. So he would he would be, you know, reading the teleprompter and he would make a mistake and they'd stop and they'd roll tape again and stuff. And we really couldn't afford it. Yeah. Because the other hosts, you know, Richard Blade and stuff were a little more seasoned. And, you know, so it would take four minutes to do one minute of host intros for them. But for Greg, it would take almost twice as long Yeah. and stuff. But in Talk Soup, he would, he would make a mistake. And we'd say, you know what, just full tape. Keep Nobody's going. watching anyway. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I started getting letters from, from women going, oh, that Greg Kinnear, he's so cute. I'm going, Really? And then the next week, I get twice as many letters going, <laughs> oh, when he makes a mistake and he rolls his eyebrows, he's the cutest guy we've ever seen. And I'm going, I said, we can't afford to, like, redo his segments and stuff, and he's going to become a big star. Which he did. Uh, you know, which he did, you know, and he's amazing. I mean, Greg is, I mean, besides being the, one of the nicest people around, you know, he's just unbelievably talented in everything he does. And um, so that was kind of the, the start of Talk Soup, and then... Alan and I, Alan, Alan lived at 30 Rock in, in New York and, um, and, and out here. But when we would stay in his apartment in New York, we met Howard in an elevator. So Howard lived in his building or just by yeah, chance? Yeah, Howard, Howard lived in the building. And, and this is back when, I mean, Howard is, you know, obviously. Howard had a local radio show. Then, so this and, is you know, before he made it really, And we would really listen big. to the show and stuff like that. We started playing with it. And again, you know, Brian Owens and his team were, we were all part of it. And... You know, people would first say, you know, to me, they go, Larry, you know, what are you talking about? I said, we're television now. I mean, radio's dead. And I'm going, no, no, no. It, this is an ensemble. This is KRP in Cincinnati in real life. <laughs> and then finally, they, they just said, yes. Yeah. So and they started, you know, really fully developing the show. And if and, you think about it, it didn't have a lot of 
production cost. You mounted a camera mounted, in their studio. cameras in the radio studio. And you just cut up the tape of what people had heard on the radio but actually got to see it. Most of the time, we didn't even cut up the tape. It, it was, was just live. <laughs> and you just blurred out certain things that yeah. weren't appropriate. That's amazing. And, and yeah, so that... Um, you know, and again, but, you know, you think of KRP in Cincinnati, that was kind of the, what we pictured that show was going to be, but a, but a real one. Yeah. Now, tell me about Eat True Hollywood story. Was that something you were involved with as well? Yeah, I, I you know, I stayed even, you know, I stayed on the board and we hired uh, Lee Masters to come in and be the day-to-day guy. And mm-hmm. uh, Lee did some amazing, uh, you know, production, programming development stuff. And that was one of his um, there, but I, you know, again, I was on the board, so ultimately I had to approve everything, and um, it was just that continuity where it's America watches Hollywood, right? And you know, there were so many great stories there that was so inexpensive to do, and again, we were on you know unbelievably low budgets. So, but for you in your own career evolution, you went from you know searching for the money, then everybody wants in, and now you move out a day to day and you go on a board, yeah, which is very different. That's where it became boring for me, mm. uh, because you know now I'm sitting on a board with the you know, the chairman of HBO and Warner Communications and you know right. all these things and um, there you know my my life is around balance sheets as opposed right. to program creation, right. and you know I'm going eh, you know this is not really what I wanted to do and so and then, you know then like I said we first year we were in 14 different countries and then yeah. then it kind of grew to 25 and. We became this, in you know, international and, phenomenon. And the channel's reinvented itself several times. I mean, from yeah, the Rivers all, and the Kardashians, it's but, very But different. all channels do that. But it was it was initially the attitude of the channel, mm. which is what, you know, which really came from Alan and I. Um, that really did it, you know, which was, uh, Hollywood is funny shit. Don't try, <laughs> and, don't try and make believe it's rocket science or anything. <laughs> So it took a very light look at Hollywood, and that's where a lot of that programming, Excellent. you know, kind of came from. That that atti- it was the overall attitude, and and the folks that worked for us who were incredibly creative knew that quirky was fine. Mm-hmm. Taking a radio show and making it into a TV <laughs> show was fine. Having a when we when we started Talk Soup, people go, Larry, you out of mind? You want to do a TV show that makes fun of TV shows? And I'm like, exactly. And they're going like you really can't do that, and I'm like, why not? You know, right. it's funny. It is funny. And, you know, so so a lot of that stuff came from that that attitude. But you got to a point. You're on the pinnacle of success. I mean, you had done it, right? First of all, were you, I'm curious. Were your parents still alive to see this? Yeah, my, both my mom and my dad were alive then, but okay. they didn't understand. But they weren't worried about you having a pension anymore now. They knew you were okay. Uh, no, no. My my mother and father would be like, you know, still like, <laughs> see, you know, like you would only have 20 years left if you would have listened to us. And, you know, uh, they didn't get it at all. Yeah. But that's also sweet about it because I think they wanted you to have security. It's yeah. just security, I think, gets redefined with each generation. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it took a while, you know, and then, you know, I got a house out here and you know, I had a swimming pool and, you know, all of that stuff. And, you know, my mom and dad would come out, they would like, you know, going, you know, do you really think you should be spending your money on this stuff? And I'm <laughs> like, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, so you, you, you're on the board and how do you get from there to the next frontier? And I bring that up because, what you're doing today is fascinating because China is a whole different world. 
right? From, but, but is it, is it, or is it really where we were 30 years ago when you came out here to LA? Well, it, it's, it's really a combination too. I, I had kind of, uh, while I was still sitting on the board of the, uh, a lawyer friend in town had, um, some clients that were in merchant banking or mm-hmm. doing stuff in Russia okay. and somebody proposed an entertainment deal to them. And he said, Larry, will you go over there and tell me if you think it's a real deal? And I said, go to Russia. Sure, I'll do that. I mean, it's still Soviet Union then, actually. And, um, of course, it wasn't a real deal, but I kind of became fascinated. You could tell that things were going to change. Mm-hmm. This was right when the Berlin Wall started to come down and and all of that. So I had um, uh, made friends with the mayor of St. Petersburg there and uh, you know, who one day came to me and said, Larry, would you help me start a concert to raise money for the children's hospital? And I'm like, I don't know anything about music. He goes, well, you got to know more than I do. And I went, all right, probably that's true. So we started this thing called the White Nights Festival. And, you know, it's now when it's, I think it's going into its 30th year now. And, um, but to get people to play, I would promise them anything, you know, like David Bowie and they would go, I'm not going. I go, David, why? It's a charity for children. He go, well, it's cold. I don't drink anymore. I don't like the people. I don't like the food. Blah, blah, blah. And they say, well, what if I let you dance on the graves of the czars? And he go, like, really? Instead of just a concert hall? He goes, yeah. I said, we'll build a stage over the graves and you could dance on their graves. Oh, my God. I love this. And he would go, well, if you could do that, then I'll do it. And I would tell the mayor. I'd say, listen, you know, I, I promised, well, we could do this. He'd go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go see Vladimir. And, you know, Vladimir's last name was Putin, who was the vice mayor of St. Petersburg at the time. And um, so, you know, we had worked with him and we we did all these amazing concerts. there. I think we ended up doing over 300 concerts there. And so now I kind of moved from TV and into film and music and other stuff. And um, one of the people that I met there ended up becoming the head of... um, communications for Russia. He was the Minister of Communications. And they had a rewrite policy for how you regulate uh, media businesses there. So he always used to ask me to help. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, which I did because, again, a lot of what they were facing, what the U.S. faced 30 years prior. Um, So, you know, how you deal with, like, cursing on TV and Mm -hmm. things like that. And um, so I had helped the Russians do that. And along the way, we started a company there, um, so now that we did concerts, we did TV shows, we brought the soap opera Santa Barbara there. I love that which show. Which became the number yeah. one TV show in Russia for 10 years. So they know the Capwells there. They know them very, very well. And uh, it was an incredibly, incredible success because it did, um, we were getting an 80% audience share. So 80% of all people watching TV were watching Santa Barbara. Wow. Uh, and it was on five nights a week for 10 years. Um, so incredibly successful. And, um, and then what happened was the Chinese realized they were kind of at the same point the Russians were, you know, some years ago, where they're moving from this 100% state-dominated media world to, you know, still wanting to stay in control, but realizing that if they're going to bring in Western Western marketers, they needed to advertise. So advertising and media needed to be a little bit more familiar. They liked the Russian model. The Russians said, oh, you got to talk to this guy in L.A. He helped us. And so I, I ended up getting invited in by the Chinese. When to, was that? Uh, I think 08 or 09. Um, so I, I worked with um, 
the the government guys in China uh, teaching young Chinese TV executives the process of creativity for profit. Which is which is probably a, a different way for them to look at it. It's totally different. Before it was if you knew the right person in the Communist Party, uh, mm-hmm. you could propose. You know, I want to do a twenty-part TV series on this spoon. You know, not spoons, but this right. spoon, and. You know, they give you the money, and you couldn't care if you got an audience or not. You got paid the same amount, whether it did good or bad. And uh, now, all of a sudden, you have Western marketers coming in and saying, "Okay, uh, who's watching this show? And what are the demos? And all of that stuff." So it needed to become more sophisticated. So they brought me in to work with these you know, young folks and helping them understand what the process is that you go through to create a TV show and get it on, and then adjust it and fix it and all of that. And, and this then, has evolved to you actually creating content for China, if I understand yeah, correctly. Yeah, so then, you know, then, you know, the, the folks said, well, why don't you, you know, create content and just, you know, don't try and free Tibet or, you know, overthrow right. the Communist Party and uh, you'll be okay. So we did that. And we, the first show we put on was, was pretty uh, interesting. It was called Hello Hollywood. But ever, we, the, the smartest thing we did was realize that we have to produce in Mandarin. Mm-hmm. That we couldn't produce shows in English and subtitle them in Chinese. That the Chinese would never accept that, and we were right. And that's why we did right, and everybody else did wrong. Uh, the the Foxes and the Warners all just took their stuff from other places and subtitled it. And it doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't and, feel uh, authentic. And the viewer, wants yeah, and to you feel- know the Chinese attitude. You know, Chinese people are very proud to be Chinese, and they said, "Look, we're three times bigger than you, and you don't put programming on in French." Right. Why would he put stuff on in a language that's not ours, made for people that are not ours? Right. Um, so Hello Hollywood ran about uh, eight years, and it was uh, all done with Mandarin hosts here in in L.A., and they would go around to the parties, the premieres, and do it. But they would do it from the point of view of what's interesting to a Chinese audience, which is right. very different than what's interesting to an American audience. They're much less gossipy. Yes. And more, it was more curiosity than gossip. Yes, and I think they want to see some of their movie stars in a very noble way. Yeah, it was respectful. You know, we we look at you know like Brad Pitt and you know people like that and say, okay, you know, tell us about this Scientology and you know we want to dig out the dirt. The Chinese really go, what do you do with your kids on a weekend? Right. Yeah, you know, it's much sweeter and gentler and stuff, which is much more in line with what originally he was anyway. Yeah. I mean, we were we celebrated the industry as opposed to trying to tear it down. So, so are you loving this new venture? I mean, is it? Do you really feel you made the same difference as you've made with E? Uh, yeah, and and actually, you know, in some ways, a lot more. You know, when people say, you know, what are the things you're proud of, and they expect me to say E. Yeah. Um, when actually, the thing that I'm most proud of that I look back on, I um, I, I wrote a comedy about the contradictions of modern Chinese life, and I wrote it in English. And my partner looked at it and said, we love this. You know, could we take it and take it to the network? And I said, yeah. You know, so they translated it and then came back and said the network loves it. And they want to know if if they, if they they'll do it and they want to have dinner with you. So I went to dinner and the head of the channel, and I know enough Mandarin now that I could understand some things. And, you know, basically, you know, he was astounded that I was not Chinese. Because when he read the story, he thought it just was so in tune with what's going on there culturally. Um, he never imagined it was written by anybody who wasn't Chinese. 
So the name of the the name of the show is Return to the Village of Good Fortune. Okay. And it was about what happens when you have incredible economic growth in a very short period of time. And people's social skills don't go as quickly as their bank account. This is true. Yes. And um, so the show went on the air and ran 70 episodes, 7-0. And so that, you think, is your most proudest moment? Well, you know, and then we were nominated for the um, for the Asia TV Awards in the, the best comedy category. And we were the only comedy from China nominated. Oh, wow. That's so I cool. said, just think about this here. You know, the funniest TV show in China is written by a New York Jew. <laughs> Um, yeah. That's rather apt. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going, okay, you know, writing writing comedy, which people say you can't write comedy for, it's the hardest thing you can do, which it was pretty hard. Um, but, you know, for a culture you didn't grow up in, in a language that you don't speak. Um, I'm going, that's a lot more than figuring out that Americans like gossip. Yeah, You know, it's funny. I think I was telling you before we started the show, I lived in China. And when I was going over to China, my mother was very nervous. And someone said to her, don't worry, they're all Jewish grandmothers over there. Yeah. And I think it's very true. I think culturally, there's just a lot in common. So there, I can there's see an that amazing we can... amount in common there. I mean, when you think about it, there are two oldest cultures. You want to look at the calendars. Yeah. And they're, they're food the cultures. Two. Yeah. It's all about eat more. So yeah, no, it's very, very similar. It's it's more similar than than any other place I've ever been. Yeah. So with all the success, you know, I got to ask you. Growing up, your early money story was t- play it safe. Am I am I hearing you correctly? Yeah. No, that was um, yeah, that was play it safe was certainly it. Yeah, and you have not played it safe at all. No, no. Now I'm just you know I'm totally reckless and. <laughs> Uh, no, I, you know, I wake up every day with new ideas. You know, people say, why don't you retire? You know, you have enough money. I go, well, what would I do? Yeah. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I got 10 new ideas. I can't wait to start them. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't want to play golf. I don't want to go retire to Palm Springs and sit in the sun or, you know, whatever. And Well, you're too young right now, so. <laughs> you know, and then China provides the opportunity to take all the things that I've learned over my whole life, you know, particularly with blending new technology. And I think the media. one thing the Chinese offer is they have an appreciation for experience. Yeah. Much different than here, where yeah. we appreciate youth much more. Yeah. No, there, there it's fun. Um, uh, there, there's this reverence for, uh, like a Chinese kid would never, you know, have anything bad to say to their grandparents. And oh, no, they their, their job is them. to grow up and take care of their grandparents. Yeah. We don't, yeah, we don't, we need very, to learn some different. of this from it's, them. It's much sweeter and nicer and yeah. in many ways. So, you know, because we talk about wealth on the show, what does wealth mean to you? Um, am I allowed to curse? Totally. Okay. It's the ability to say, fuck you. <laughs> I love that. I <laughs> love it. Really <laughs> what it boils down to is, is people constantly pitching ideas, the ability to say no. Yes. To anything you don't want to do. It's a luxury. Yeah. And, and that's it. You know, most of the time people spend their life having to compromise and you know, this is not exactly right or whatever, but I'll do this because I got to pay the rent this month. Um, it's it's the ability to say no. So you would know? you say that's the, if I asked you what the best financial advice you ever got, would it be the same advice? Well, it's just, it, I, I think, you know, you look at the point, you know, what do you strive for? And I think, you know, for me, it's the point of being able to say no. Yeah. You know, so I don't like that. I don't want to do it. It's not interesting for me or whatever the reason is, is not to have to do anything you don't want to do. I think that's really important. You know, I think it is a luxury, the ability to say no. Yeah. So so in these final moments, you know, I just want to where can people find out more about you or your work in China? Um, 
I, you know, you can look up my Facebook page and stuff. And I actually do my Facebook page myself. Do you? Okay. Um, the other ones, Instagram and all that stuff, the office does. And uh, So just look up Larry Namer on Facebook? Yeah, you look up Larry Namer on Facebook and you find me. And, and I, I answer most things myself. Uh, so as long as it's not a ridiculous question, I'll, I'll actually answer. And, um, you know, that's it. Well, Larry, I want to thank you for being on the show. This has been so amazing, especially, you know, as someone who has watched E! the since the beginning, pretty much. I really appreciate it. And for all listening, uh, you know, feel free to reach out. I'm available at Megan at thewealthintersection.com. I'm on Twitter at Wealth Intersect and on Instagram and Facebook at thewealthintersection.com. And until then, take care. Thanks so much for tuning in to The Wealth Intersection. Megan Gorman will be back with another program next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then. 